0: There's a lot of things you might be not really living up to snuff about right now. Are you getting enough haircuts? Are you shaving enough? Are you keeping up with your personal hygiene? Well, one thing that you don't want to be a loser about is having that dirty car. You know, whether it's just driving around town, whether it's you picking up a friend, you want the clean car. And don't you want the sparkly clean car that you're proud of? Well, guess what? Tommy's Express Car Wash, they are going to hook you up with a great car wash that's going to get that car sparkly, nice, so that when you go to the store, everybody's looking at your car and says, oh, man. Where did that guy get his car washed? It's wash, rinse, repeat at Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's right. Endless washing for one low price with the Tommy Club app. It's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry, unlimited use of exclusive app lane, unlimited access to all Tommy's Express locations because there's a lot of them, unlimited guest service, and most importantly, unlimited happiness they've got the tools and expertise to keep your car clean inside and out their wash packages let you pay for the services you want including tommy guard and body wax wheel cleaning and tire gloss underbody flush and spot free rinse and vacuuming so download the tommy club app today and enjoy that endless washing go to tommy's express car wash
1: You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Schwert and Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320
0: KLWN. What's going on? Derek Johnson in today for Nick Schwert. He took off early, four-day weekend, must be nice. So I got you covered today and a big day today. I mean, we've got a lot of guests coming on, but also Costco. I heard that they're going to be bringing back full sampling at all stores by the end of June. They're also bringing back churros. Wow. That's a big day in general, just with Costco bringing that all back. But as I said, lots of guests on today's show. Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back. He's going to join the show in about 35 minutes from right now. We'll talk a little KU football, a little NBA playoffs with BMAC. At the top of the 4 o'clock hour, we're going to be joined by Shane Jackson, of the lawrence journal world and Sports.com and uh lots going on in the high school arena with state championships for track and field baseball softball so we'll kind of get an update with shane jackson at four o'clock and then scott chasen of 24 7 sports fog.net is going to join us at about 4 40 to talk a little ku basketball i want to open today's show i want to I want to start things off here by talking about the Bill Self possible rotations now that we look at this roster and we're into the off season, the portion of it where you can look at every single player and go down the list and say, I think that guy's going to going to play minutes. I think that guy's going to be a part of the rotation. And you can do it with like every player. But as we all know, once push comes to shove, that's not really how it works out. And this year, it's even possibly crazier. If Ochai and Jalen Wilson come back and Remy Martin decides to go to Kansas as opposed to pursuing the NBA, you would have 14 scholarship players because Mitch Lightfoot's scholarship doesn't count toward the total. A lot of Kansas teams we've seen with even an open scholarship have had 12, but for the most part, 13. Now you're one above that and you are already having questions about with all these guys you've brought in as transfer, how many of them are going to be expecting to play sizable roles or at least impactful roles in this rotation? I would say many of them. So I wanted to go back and do a bit of a deep dive on Bill Self rotations in his time at Kansas. We have a, a good little sample size, 18 seasons to look at dating back to the 2003 to 2004 seasons to kind of look at how deep his rotations typically have gone. And this is a little bit of a subjective exercise. Um, Like, if I asked somebody on the street, would you consider that Tristan and Aruna was a part of the rotation, quote-unquote? You know, like, typically. Of course, there were certain games he was part of the rotation by a literal perspective, but would most people consider that he was a consistent part of the rotation? Maybe not. So that's a little subjective. So I'm I'm going to try to narrow this down to three different categories that you can sort things into. And with that, we'll see what we come up with. If we consider players who played 4% of a team's minutes to be part of the rotation, you might be saying why 4%? That seems like such an arbitrary number. Well, yeah, it kind of is. But if you played 4% of a team's minutes, I'm talking about total minutes, 4% of a team's total minutes that season, that means in theory, you played eight minutes a game for every single game that season because we're doing total minutes. So maybe you played 10 g- minutes a game, but you missed a couple games, so you still ended up right around essentially being at eight minutes per game if you took it divided by total games as opposed to just the games played for that player. And the reason why cutting it off there, a lot of times you'll see players come in for a four or five minute stretch. So if you're in the rotation for eight minutes per game for every single game, in theory, which 4% of total minutes, however you get there, you're probably coming in on two separate occasions for those chunks, or you're playing one big chunk altogether. So we'll consider that part of the rotation. By that number, 4% of a team's total minutes played. Of the 18 seasons that Bill Self has had, two of them have gone seven deep. That's a very thin roster. Ten of them have gone eight deep. So more than half of them have gone eight deep. That's kind of the sweet spot right there. Four of them have gone nine deep, 06, 08, 2011, and 2016. All very good teams. Um, 06, obviously, you ended up losing in the first round, but those other three were three of the four, five best teams Bill Selfs had at Kansas. And two of them went 10 deep. So you have a couple kind of outliers, two that are seven deep, two that are 10 deep. The 10 deep ones were 2015 and 2019, two teams that struggled a little bit. For the most part, that sweet spot is at 8. Now, as I said, it's a bit subjective, so why don't we look at another way to view this? If we view it as players who played 80% of a team's games, this doesn't look at minutes. As long as you just appeared in the game, whether it was for 2 minutes, whether it was for 15, if you just played in 80% of the team's games, so 4 out of every 5 games, 7 deep, it's 2. 8 deep, it's 10. 9 deep is 6. None of them went 10 deep. And then the last category, if just to kind of cover a basis here, if we view it as players who play double-digit minutes per game, so this is viewing it as a per-game basis, what you did when you entered that game, playing double-digit minutes. Four of them were seven deep in the rotation. Nine were eight deep. One was nine deep. Four were ten deep. So this is a lot of numbers. So... I don't want to inundate you with numbers or anything, um, but if you notice the trend, a majority of Bill Self's teams play eight players. Simple as that. If you literally add up the averages, total it all up, figure out your average. Over the 18 seasons with those three ways of looking at it, Bill Self teams are playing about 8.3 men per game or 8.3 men rotation for a season, if you want to look at it that way. So it's eight. That is a typical Bill Self rotation, eight deep. And once you get to the NCAA tournament, once you get to March Madness, even throw that out the window because it's going to get even tighter. You know, once you get to the NCAA tournament, it might be seven if it's eight. It might be six if it's seven. It's going to be eight if it's nine. You know, it, it's going to cut down a little bit more. But I, I want to kind of look at this over the course of the regular season because we'll figure out what we think the rotation is going to tighten to in March once we get into the season. And we're seeing these guys playing. That makes it easier. But to try to figure out which will even make the cut to being able to play in the regular season, how deep the regular season rotation could be, I think, is a very interesting chore given this team. And we'll talk more about this with Scott Jason. When you look at this roster, good luck trying to whittle it down to that eight-man rotation that Bill Self typically plays. I mean, you seemingly have guaranteed minutes. You know, Remy Martin, Joe Yesifu, Christian Brown, Ocha Agbaje if he returns, Jalen Coleman lands, Jalen Wilson if he comes back, David McCormick. That's already seven guys. And I guess I was a little lenient there because... I mean, you could argue maybe Joe Yesufu isn't guaranteed minutes. I would argue he is. I would argue he's going to play 20, 25, 30 minutes a game. But I do think there is a wider outcome of possibilities or possible outcomes for Joe Yesufu than maybe we're leading on. You know, would it be unthinkable that Joe Yesufu doesn't shoot as hot as he did at the end of a season ago when he gets buried on the bench a little bit, it's possible, but I wouldn't expect it. So I would expect those seven guys to pretty much have guaranteed minutes. And again, that is lenient because there's a few other guys maybe you would argue and say, that guy's definitely going to play. DeWan Harris, maybe you throw him in there. Bobby Pettiford, Kyle Cuff, KJ Adams, Cam Martin, you bring on a D2, transfer has one year left to play, probably going to play. Mitch Lightfoot, Zach Clements. Those are seven other guys, hypothetically, Again, if I give seven guys guaranteed minutes and typically a Bill Self-Rotation is eight deep, those guys, Harris, Pettiford, Cuff, Adams, Martin, Lightfoot, Clements, one spot for seven guys if it's an eight-man rotation. So pick one. DeWan Harris, Bobby Pettiford, Cuff, Adams, Martin, Lightfoot, Clements. One of them's going to play. You know, maybe you say Cuff's going to redshirt. Maybe you say Lightfoot won't really crack the rotation. Uh, Pettiford just had a bad ankle injury, so maybe that lessens his chances of playing and being ready for the season and being as developed early on. Adams, maybe he's not ready yet. Even if you made all those, I guess, kind of excuses why a guy's not going to play, that still leaves three guys for one spot, which would leave um, Martin Harris and Clements for one spot. So all that tells me, it leads me to believe one thing. This KU team, based on the roster, it kind of trends more to being on the side of the KU teams that Bill Self's had in the past that play nine to 10 man rotations. And it actually is a little bit surprising to me, even though the averages said that for the most part, Bill Self teams play eight deep, and a majority of Bill Self teams have played eight deep, 10 out of the 18 it did surprise me a little bit that there are more than you would think that played 9 or 10 deep. About a third. About a third of the time, Bill Self's rosters play 9 or 10 deep. And I think this is going to add to that total based on all those guys and those names I just said. So I don't know what guys specifically are going to crack the rotation, but at least the precedent is there. So often we've seen the rotation tighten for self. And as I said earlier, once we come to March, I'm sure it will be back to seven or eight guys. But over the course of the regular season, with how many guys they have that could legitimately impact the rotation, how many transfers they brought in who have meaningful experience at other schools, we have a top 40 recruit and Zach Clements, a bunch of top 100 recruits. I kind of think this season is going to look more like the 2006, 2008, 2011, 2015, 2016, 2019 squads. Not necessarily in their in their play. There's a lot of ri- wide-ranging outcomes there, you know. 2016 was awesome. 2015 not so much. But all those teams I just named basically played nine or 10 guys. And I think that's what we're going to see out of this year's team. FM1017 1320 KLWN. Now, you might be alarmed by a few of those teams I brought up there, 2015-2019. Let's talk about that next in how is there a correlation between a too deep of a rotation and a team struggling versus a team who has a tighter rotation doing well. Under Bill Self, there is a bit of a correlation, but I'm going to Try to kind of explain why I think context matters there, and I wouldn't be too worried about it if KU does play a deeper rotation this season. is going to join us in about 20 minutes as well. Talk a little KU football and NBA playoffs. This is Rock Shock Sports Talk. Father's Day is just around the corner, and you probably need a new gift for your hairy dad. Make your dad proud this year. Get him, and yourself even, the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right. The Lawnmower 4.0. You get 20% off. And you get free shipping. That's right. 20% off and free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. I don't know about your dad, but my dad gets the nose hairs and he'll like pull them out because obviously you don't want him there. It'll make his eyes water. You know, I don't, I don't know if sadistically he actually likes doing it or if, you know, it's just kind of a, a means to an end. He's just trying to get the nose hairs out. So you know what I'm doing for my dad for Father's Day? And I hope he doesn't listen to this because it's going to spoil the present That I'm getting for him, but I'm going to use my code RCST at manscaped.com to get my 20% off, and I'm going to get him the Weed Whacker nose and ear hair trimmer, which is the best nose hair trimmer on the market and the perfect gift for your pops. That way, he doesn't have to make his eyes water and pull out all those nose hairs individually and be gross, and I don't know. You don't want your fingers sticking up your nose, and then, obviously, you know, genetically, what if I end up getting all these nose hairs? Then I know. By getting him the Weed Whacker nose and ear hair trimmer. That it works for him. And I'll be able to get one for myself. If that occurs for me as well. And I know he has the ear hairs as well. He'll do the same thing. So I know exactly what to get him. And again, that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And use the code RCST. They've got plenty of great stuff on the Manscaped website. Including the Lawnmower 4.0. Check it out. Get your dad a nice gift. Don't forget that you came from your dad's balls. This year, show your original home some love. With Manscaped. Welcome back. Rock, rock Sports Talk here. FM 1017 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson in for Nick Schwert today. On your Friday, we got a long weekend ahead for us. No show on Monday. Don't forget you can check out all our stuff on the Best of RCST podcast brought to you by Tommy's Express Car Wash. And also Manscaped where you can get a 20% off with promo code RCST. So in the open, we obviously went over all those numbers about the rotation. Um, and I guess you could have, if you were listening closely to the teams that had some of the bigger rotations for KU, maybe you would hear about some of those teams that went 10 deep by at least 4% of minutes played. And both of them were teams that lost in the second round and never really hit their stride. Of course, in reference to the 2015 and 2019 teams, 2015 team was the Kelly Oubre team. The 2019 was the Diedrich Lawson team again teams that had successful-ish seasons. You know, you got a two-seed, you got a four-seed, but compared to KU standards, you know, one of the years you didn't win the Big 12, and neither year you really ever looked like a Final Four contender, and obviously you didn't make it out of the first weekend. And when you look at the opposite end of things, by that same metric, the teams that were seven deep, so I guess the shortest of benches, the teams that had the tightest rotations, You're looking at teams that went on deep runs in March, whether it's a Final Four appearance or an Elite Eight appearance. So I think that brings up a good question. If you're looking at those numbers, do you view that as saying you want to have a deep rotation or are you better off having a tighter rotation? I mean, you can can throw out examples um, if you just looked around the country, forget KU, of each and every way. And I, I think it's important to point out that you know, whatever works best for your coaching system, your personnel, your specific team is going to be what's best. And there is no necessarily right way to do it. You could say this about anything. You know, a team who plays slow, a team who plays fast, what's better? Well, we see teams who play fast, make the final four. We see teams who play slow, make the final four. You know, there, there is no right answer. There's multiple ways to skin a cat, so to speak. But does this apply for the bench unit? Well, okay, Gonzaga had a much shorter bench last year. Baylor was a little bit deeper. They went about eight deep when you had Meyer, Flagler, and then depending which big was starting, Flo Thamba or Jonathan Chamwa Chachua, the other one was coming off the bench. Um, you could go back and look at teams like Florida State who have had really successful seasons playing 10, 11 guys. So, um, I, again, multiple ways to, to skin a cat. But as far as the Bill Self thing, maybe there is that question. Do you want to have a deeper rotation? Or are you better off with the tighter rotation? I think part of it is looking at context, though. It's much easier to come up with why the 2015 and 2019 teams played a lot of guys. As we look into this 2021 team, if they play a lot of guys, and again, who knows? You never know how pieces are going to fit and how players are going to play when they transition to a new school. But in theory, we look at this roster and say, if they do play a lot of guys, it's because a lot of them are really good, you know? It's because a lot of guys have played meaningful minutes, meaningful games at other schools, and they're coming over here now, so you expect them to play again. But when you look at the 2015 and 2019 teams, I don't view those as teams where, oh, they just played a lot of guys because they had so many stars on the team. I view those a little bit differently. They were kind of trying to figure out who the best players were. They were trying to figure out the right rotation or mix of players in that lineup. You know, like 2015. You didn't know if Kelly Oubre was the guy off the bench. You didn't know if he was going to be a star. Um, Frank Mason and Devontae Graham were still in their developmental stages. Devontae Graham was a freshman that year. Frank, it was his first year starting. Wayne Seldon still had yet to break out. You had a bunch of bigs. You didn't really know what your best option was. Is it Cliff Alexander? Is it Jamari Trailer? Is it Landon Lucas? Is it uh, Carlton Brat? You know, you had so many questions. You just didn't know how to fit all the pieces together. None of those players were really fully developed yet. 2019. You know, it was the same kind of thing. We went into that season actually thinking it was going to be kind of loaded. So maybe that is a cautionary tale for this year. But at the end of the day, once you look back on it now, you say, we viewed it loaded with depth because we thought that Charlie Moore was going to be awesome. We thought that KJ Lawson was going to be awesome. And those things didn't really pan out for you. And then again, when you throw in Udoka's injury, LaGerald Vick leaving the team, of course, there's going to be... A, a, almost like Bill Self scientist mode where you're testing different formulas and potions and and whatnot to try to figure out the best lineup because you lose two basically starters off the roster. On top of it, you had a bunch of newcomers and you had, like I said, a bunch of guys who, whether it was freshmen, Devon Dotson, Quentin Grimes playing for the first time or guys playing into new roles, you just couldn't really ever figure out the lineup. So that's how I kind of view those teams. Um, They just didn't really know what, the right rotation or lineup was, and they never got to figure that out. And part of that was because the players, not enough of them seemingly emerged into their specific roles. So I guess in one sense, KU having a deeper rotation could be a means of them never figuring out the right role and the right lineups. That could be one cause of playing a deeper rotation. You just don't know who the best guys are. Um, It could mean that, you know, players didn't emerge enough to prove that they are the best on the team. Like, again, Kelly Oubre might have been the most talented player on the 2015 team, but as a freshman in college, he hadn't really figured that out yet. You know, maybe if he was a sophomore, it would have been a different situation. Maybe it could also just be a means that they're really deep in certain situations, and that's what I would argue for this team as opposed to those 2015-2019 teams. You look at context, those teams apply to what I was previously just saying. The 2021 team, I would argue, more applies to they just have a lot of guys who can play. You know, it's it's not a situation like 2019 where it's, yeah, but we haven't seen how Charlie Moore is going to translate over. And, and yeah, there's going to be certain guys where that's true, but we know Remy Martin did it at a Power 5 level. Jalen Coleman-Lance did it at a Power 5 level. You don't have a bunch of freshmen who are – participating in this. Like, think about this. In 2015, KU was coming off of losing Nadir Tharp, Andrew Wiggins, Joel Embiid all out of the starting lineup. So, basically, three of five. And in 2019, KU was coming off of losing Devontae, Sfi, and Malik out of the starting lineup. And then later that year, as previously mentioned, Gerald Vick off the team, Doak gets injured. So, basically, you were replacing all five starters, essentially. So, you had to replace, not just a lot in general, but you had to place, replace a lot of the starters, the guys who were playing the most pivotal roles that would make it easier to figure out what the role players, the backups, the rotation guys, the bench would all have to do. This year, not only would KU have the depth, but they would have the returning starters those other teams did not have to kind of set those foundation, those building blocks in place to allow you to fill guys into more roles. If Wilson returns, you have three of five starters back. You didn't have that in 2015 or 2019. If Wilson and Ochai returns, you have four of five starts back. And again, those other ones said two to three or even zero in some sense. So that's a big improvement. I think it just allows you to figure out roles quicker, um, figure out rotations easier, and have more comfortability playing together. So I guess in summation, what this basically means to me, I wouldn't get overly concerned with the fact that the biggest rotation self has played were teams that underwhelmed, and the smallest were teams that went on deep runs. If KU gets Wilson and Ochai back, which I think you expect with Wilson, maybe it's 50-50 with Ochai, that's a big reason to be optimistic, not just because of the new pieces, but because you wouldn't have to answer as many questions about fitting the puzzle pieces together into bigger roles. I wouldn't worry about the fact that 2015 and 2019 played a lot of guys, you know, and weren't as successful if this team ends up playing a deep rotation, just because I think the context is a lot different there. And I think you can even look to the teams that played nine men rotations where it was one off, you know, the 2015, 2019, instead of a 10-man rotation, you look at teams that played nine men rotations, still deeper than self-typically plays. As we previously mentioned, the average is eight guys. So even nine is deeper than he typically plays. And when you look at the teams that played 9 men rotations, you have 2008, which won a title. 2011, which probably should have won a title, ends up still one of the best seasons that Bill Self's had and makes the Elite Eight. And the 2016 team, which, you know, that team was awesome. I don't, I don't think that team gets enough love with how good they were. They were uh, just elite defensively, um, offensively. You had Mason, Graham, selden in his breakout year perry ellis like that that was a squad and it was deep as well you, you could make the the serious argument that 08 2011 2016 are the three best teams bill self has i'm not saying that's correct but at least three of the top five that bill self has ever had and those teams played deeper rotations at nine men rotations. so uh like i said i think it's a context thing you can skin a cat multiple ways If KU does have three of five or four or five starters back, I think it makes the depth an advantage, unlike some of those previous years where maybe it was more of a symptom of the cause that was they just couldn't figure it out. FM 101.7 and 1320, KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk, Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back of the Jayhawk Radio Network, going to join us next, talk a little KU football and a little NBA playoff talk. That on the other side. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. In for Nick Schwert today here on RCST, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Joined now on the phone by Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back and member of the Jayhawk Radio Network, the sideline analyst for the KU football team. Uh, BMAC, you've been doing some really cool videos with Daryl Stuckey, which I I love all those videos that you guys have been doing. Um, And a couple of these new ones you've been doing with some of the new assistant coaches. Um, so I guess as you've gotten to do these kind of round table talks with some of these new coaches, uh, what are some of the things that you're learning about the new guys that you didn't already know before?
1: Well, what I like about it the most is I like their approach. Um, they're very confident, but in a humble way, um, they're very consistent. And, in, and I mean this in the best way possible. It was a lot like talking to high school coaches. They're just, they're very down to earth. They're very focused on the work. They're not focused on perception. They're not focused on selling an ideal. What they're doing is saying, we coach football, and that's what we're here to do.
0: How much of that mentality, I guess, like you said, just being so down to earth, do you think comes from the roots of specifically with guys like Borland and Leipold coming from a Division three school? Do you think that relates to that at all?
1: Absolutely, I think what's been interesting was what was interesting with Borland is, I think there were some things that he's a little bit too humble to say, but I think he looked back on it like, you know, this was an attain this was a goal that I put at the top of the charts for myself when I started in this business, and to get there through the path that he got there is pretty amazing. I mean, especially considering the route. I know for uh, Coach Leipold, being that he was at a position where you know, at Nebraska, at an assistant, as an assistant for three years, where he could have actively pursued that from a pretty high point. And for whatever reason, his journey led him backwards. I think that says a lot about their confidence and what they're able to do in their belief system.
0: Of course, Andy Kotelnicki, the offensive coordinator. Um, I guess, how much time do you think it's going to take for KU to be able to fully implement the Kotelnicki offense? Or do you think that KU might have – not necessarily a leg up, but maybe a bigger advantage than you normally would with having a new coaching staff come in at this point in time, just because last year you were kind of dealing with a shortened off season to begin with. So I guess if this one's shortened as well, just in terms of the familiarity with the staff, it shouldn't be as big of a deal.
1: What I think will help them in terms of the transition is how simple, um, Their processes are how simple their schemes are. They are a coaching staff that focuses on uh, mastering technique, mastering you know being great at two or three things as opposed as opposed to being pretty good at six or seven things. So I think what they'll be able to do is. The things that they put in won't be overly complicated, and then they won't mind spending a whole lot of time on mastering these techniques to make them effective at one thing. Because I think that's, that's vital to being a successful program at this level is you have to be able to do one thing really, really well, and they coach to that model. So I think that some of the implementation will be a little easier because the schemes are not going to be overly complex.
0: Is that more similar to kind of what Kansas State does? I mean, how would you compare that, I guess, to your playing days, too, at KU with Mangino?
1: So, I could explain the offense. We ran with Coach Mangino uh, in an hour, tops. Everything we did was very, very simple. I mean, and the number system was even more simple, and I think what it allowed us to do was really focus on it allowed us to week to week, it made our game planning easier. We didn't game plan for specific opponents. We knew what we were going to run because we called it to that. So we knew uh which fronts, which run game worked better against which fronts. So our main principles were inside, outside, zone, and then the things that we that we did after that were were uh defense specific so they would be to a certain decent. So the game we could kind of game plan with the coaches just by And I don't mean that like it was that easy because obviously they had a lot more work to do than we did. But, I mean, from a general perspective, we had a good understanding of what type of audibles would be in that week, what type of run game would be in in that week. And then so they could add wrinkles easier because we knew our base offense really, really well. So we did something very similar in terms of focusing on doing some, some simple things really, really well and then kind of using that to make our game plans easier. So I think that's the long term benefit is that they're going to be able to do their base stuff against anything and then they'll be it'll be easier for them to add wrinkles because of their base offense isn't so complex.
0: I I've seen the stories before where it's like, you know, you have an old video of an interview with Emmett Smith and they're talking about like a game in the nineties against the Eagles where You know, they just ran the same play five straight times, ten straight times, whatever it is, just, you know, pounding the ball in the middle on the run because it worked every time. How often does that happen? Is is that something that would happen at all where it's, hey, we ran the same play three times that drive or five times, ten times that game?
3: Yeah,
1: that happened in the Orange Bowl. When we were closing out uh, Virginia Tech, we ran inside zone every play. I mean, there was no wrinkles. There was no nothing. We simply lined up and ran inside zone. They knew we had to run the football. We knew we had to run the football. Uh, we were going against numbers that weren't in our favor, and we still ran the ball. We still finished the game off just handing it to me, and guys did their job, and we were able to wiggle out a couple first downs and end the game. There was nothing complex about that. <laughs> we, there was no conversations. We looked over. We knew late in the game we we're not going to audible because we just want to run the clock out. Uh, so we knew what we were doing. They knew what we were doing. They couldn't stop us.
0: We're talking with Brandon McAnderson here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Um, uh, You've been seeing, I I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, some of the players have posted on social media lately with, like, the new profile picture, and it's in KU gear, which its I I guess it's not that big of a deal, but it it almost is like a confirmation to say, I'm sticking around for this year with the new coaching staff. Uh, And you've obviously, like I said, been around some of these new coaches now with the roundtables and such. How kind of easy is it to believe in what they can do for this program in that you're seeing that relate to guys, especially, you know, I know the big one this week was like Karan Prunty making that post.
1: So I think it makes a it's like a, it's an easing of the feelings of the fans, but I don't know how worried the players should be about that. You know, it's time to, I always tell my kid, my son is always, my 12 year old is always telling my six year old how to do stuff. And I always say to him, hey, man, you got enough problems. And that's kind of how I feel about Kansas football. The players have – they need to be focused on themselves, improving themselves, focusing on what they need to do better, improving in strength and conditioning, and then letting the people that take care of those things take care of them. And I know it's been hard for them to trust what's going on above them, and I think that's been complicated for the program in the past. But they're going to have to take a deep breath and trust in – what Coach Leipold and his staff are doing so that they can take care of what they need to take care of. I don't think they need to be making any statements about their confirmation of, of whether whether or not they want to be here and all that kind of stuff. They need to be focused on what they need to do as football players individually and how that can help the team collectively. I think that's where their focus should be entirely.
0: All right, we shortchanged you last week with some NBA talk, BMAC, so I'm going to give a little bit more time today carved out Just some NBA talk, and and now we've got a little bit more of action into the NBA playoffs. So I guess just to reset it, we'll start in the East. Sixers up 2-0 on the Wizards. Bucks went up 3-0 on your Heat last night. Uh, Nets up 2-0 on the Celtics. Knicks and Hawks are tied 1-1. What series so far in the East has caught your eye the most?
1: Knicks-Hawks. And I kind of expected it to be, um, you know, I think the Hawks are more talented, but because of all the intangibles, the Knicks and Hawks are even. It's also really cool seeing Madison Square Garden important again, especially someone that loved the 90s Knicks um, and their style of play and what it felt like to watch a game on TV in that building. I mean, forget about being in the building. So it just meant a lot. So it's cool to see the Knicks revival, and it's really cool to see the Knicks revival uh, be at the hands of someone like Derrick Rose who just keeps clawing and fighting and you know this guy you know for all the talk about what he wasn't that guy keeps fighting for his career and it's super fun to watch him be successful
0: Has anything you've seen so far in the East changed the way that you think it's going to play out over the next several weeks
1: No not necessarily I will say that the Bucks have been a pleasant surprise because you know we've gotten used to the Bucks being this great regular season team without a lot of substance in the postseason, and I think they had been hearing that noise too, and they they appear to be pretty pissed off about it. Um, I think it's scary for teams uh, facing the Bucks that Giannis doesn't have to do it every night anymore, and it's not like it's due to one thing. Obviously, Drew Holiday. I think I heard a stat this morning where Drew Holiday is plus eighty four and they're minus 23 when he's not on the court. So, I mean, he's a big-time individual uh, contributor, but I think he also gives them toughness and, and balance at a position where Eric Bledsoe was so feast or and they couldn't count on anything from him. Um, so just the upgrade of his consistency is enough, let alone his just talent and, and defensive prowess. And Brook Lopez is playing closer to the rim now, and I think that presents problems. You can't play small guys on him anymore if he's going to play that close to the rim. So they – they made some subtle little adjustments that we really couldn't gauge during the regular season that have clearly worked uh, as we head into the postseason. I,
0: I can't remember if I asked this last week or not, but in, in case I did, I'll ask it again. Uh, with a few, few playoff games now under our belt, who do you think is the better threat to Brooklyn, Milwaukee or Philadelphia?
1: I think Milwaukee because their ability to play offense or deep and defense. So I think what what you'll see is that this kind of reminds me of those the Warriors team that was completely unbeatable. And one of the reasons they were is because they had guys that could play. And I'm talking about even pre-Durant where they had guys that had equal value as two-way players, even guys that couldn't shoot, you know, guys like Iguodala, guys like Draymond Green in terms of being distributors and smart players and then being locked down defenders on the other side. So it took a team that had a lot of playmaking and defense to beat them and tons of injuries. But – the Raptors fit that profile because they had guys that were two-way players that could guard their position well and create shots. I think the Bucks have the same combination. Um, They have their superstar in Giannis, and then they have guys that can get their own shot and guard their position. Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton. I know they just lost Devin Chinzo, who doesn't seem like a huge loss, but he, he's so active on the boards. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little. They'll feel that a little bit, Um, but. The shooting behind that, guys like PJ Tucker, Bryn Forbes, uh, Connaughton, uh, Brooke Lopez, generally able to knock down threes, Bobby Portis being able to be a, a streaky shooter. So they have way more options than they have before, and they have two way options. So I think they are a bigger threat uh, to the Nets than I imagine that they would be. Because, you know, the big problem with the Nets, the only problem with the Nets so far is rebounding, and that's something that the, the Bucks will be able to, to punish the Nets.
0: Yeah. I'd just be really interested if it, if it is Philadelphia and I guess they'd have to hypothetically go through both just because, and I don't disagree with you on the bucks thing, but with Philadelphia, it'd be such a clash in, you know, with the nets. It's, it's all about the offense, right? Like they might have one of the best offenses ever, but the defense can be lacking. Although, you know, they've ramped that up. Um, with the 76ers, like, it is all about the defense. And, like, you could say, well, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, James Harden, those are three of the best offensive players in the league. You can look at the Sixers and go, well, Joel Embiid might be the best defensive center in the league. Ben Simmons might be the best perimeter defender in the league. Matisse Theibel is in that conversation, too. Danny Green is one of the best team defenders and role players in the league. So I just think that would be really interesting seeing the kind of back and forth between those two.
1: And to be clear, you asked if had anything changed, in my opinion, I thought the Sixers would be a good matchup for the Nets before the playoffs started. I wasn't sure about the Buc- the, the Bucks. So I'm more saying, like, I think the, this early playoff run by the Bucks has reaffirmed my, my belief that they can be a real challenger to the Nets. I thought the Sixers would be a real challenger to the Nets anyway, because they're going to be, it changes the type of lineups you can play. So the Nets' best lineup this year has been Jeff Green at center. Um, they can't do that against the Heat, against the Sixers. That's out the door. You can't play small guys on Embiid, uh, so it limits their ability, who they play in that fifth spot. So in that series, you're going to see more, uh, more Claxton, more DeAndre Jordan, and then so now that weakens their defense because right now the only thing that weakens their defense is is Blake Griffin. I know the Celtics are so banged up; it's hard for them to do anything. But Blake Griffin on the perimeter, and it hasn't been great. Um, on defense, but he can't play center against Embiid, so he's not even an option. So it kind of changes their rotation, because now they're going to have, it's going to be hard to split those minutes because of the way Embiid is played, and then when Embiid goes to the bench, you're bringing in Dwight Howard, who's become this this late career rim running offensive rebound monster, and he, it, you can't play small guys on him either, so I think they pro- they pose a lot of problems to the, to the Nets' weakness, which is right now rebounding, and then I think to an extent defense, except the Celtics aren't equipped to do anything about that. Uh, but I think you'll see that the Bucks will be able to do something about it, and I think the Sixers will be able to do something about it as well. So it'll be very competitive in those two matchups.
0: All right, we've got BMAC with us a few more minutes. I do think it's interesting with Philadelphia. We spent so much time, I shouldn't say we, but just like, a lot of people spent a lot of time talking about, oh, they got to trade one of Embiid or Simmons. They can't work together. But instead, they were just like, no, nah, we'll just we'll just make a few tweaks. We'll sign Dwight Howard, and it just ended up working so perfectly. Um, on, on to the West, though, where the Jazz and the Grizzlies are even one to one. A bit surprisingly, uh, the Mavericks are up two zero on the Clippers. That a bit of a surprise. Lakers have come back from the game one loss to take a two one lead. Nuggets up two one after they were down one zero. I'll kind of ask the same thing here that I asked you about the East. What has kind of caught your eye so far in the Western Conference?
1: It had to be that Clippers-Mavericks. I don't think it's surprising that the Mavericks are competitive. Um, I think it's surprising that Luka is 22 years old and he's the best player on the court with Paul Jordan and Kawhi also on it. And it's just amazing how he's making these adjustments. It feels like the way it used to work in the past was you would watch a guy play in the playoffs. And you could see how there was some hole in this game that you thought, okay, he's going to have to overcome this in the coming years. I know in, that, in, the, in the series against the Clippers last year, I thought for Luka it was posting smaller players because you could put guards on him that could get underneath him, and he couldn't do a lot around the rim. Well, a year later, that's over. Like he, his post His ability to bully small guys just in that one year that improvement that he's made has pr- been pretty scary. So I think it's kind of to the point where the biggest weakness of his offensive game, he's already addressed, and he's 22 years old. And that shooting thing, everybody always points to his shooting percentages because they're lower than – the shooter that we see in the playoff games. And I think that's because they they've just dealt with so much injury and turnover, uh COVID this year. Um Doncic self admitted he was out of shape because he expected the season to start later. So some of those shooting percentage things aren't great indicators of the quality of shooter that he is. So I think that as his shooting increases, I really don't know what anyone's going to do with him.
0: Yeah, luca has been been awesome to watch and I think you just look at the West in general like the uh, as a Nuggets fan, Damian Lillard is causing me way too much stress right now, but he is absolutely incredible to watch. And I think just each and every team in the West you look at and say, there's like one guy on pretty much every team that you tune into and say, wow, I'm really excited to see what he does tonight.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of good players. Almost every team has one. That I, The other night when the Blazers were down 18 and Damian Lillard just made every shot uh, <laughs> until they were down five, that was as scary as it gets. But then the Joker, you know, penguins around and then ends up with 36, 12, and 5, and he didn't even look like he played that well. So I think there's just some really, really good superstar players in the West.
0: He's Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winner, Jayhawk Radio Network, KU football sideline analyst. BMAC, thank you, and uh, enjoy your three-day weekend.
1: Yes, sir. I appreciate you. All
0: right, there's Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back, joining us here on Rock Jock Sports Talk one hour down two to go four o'clock hour here on rock shock sports talk fm 1017 and 1320 klwn we're joined now by shane jackson of the lawrence journal world who comes on the show uh to talk about some high school sports here today uh track and field state championships in the state of kansas going on so is the baseball and the softball state championships as well so Shane has been very busy, but you can check out all of his great work again in the Lawrence Journal world, ljworld.com. Uh, Shane, I know you're out at the track and field events today. Yesterday was a pretty successful day for Free State, to say the least. It was the birthday of assistant coach Steve Heffernan, and it sounds like he had uh, quite the day to celebrate yesterday.
2: Yeah, he did. Uh, you know, The 4x800 uh, relay team for the boys uh, came through for him. As is kind of was kind of expected, actually going into yesterday, uh that's the only thing I knew for certain. It was like four by eights going to win a state title, and everything else will take care of itself, but at least I had an idea of what I was going to write about and They finished off their undefeated season they were you know they they finished in first every single meet they were in uh you know a couple of years ago they finished eighth in the state meet um and but I think they had high expectations. Uh, last year, and then then they want to cross when it didn't happen, and they played cross country, and they won a state title in cross country. I think everybody just kind of assumed that they were going to be good, and that distance squad has kind of led free state for much of the year. But that, that relay in particular, I mean, that's that's a really good group, and they've been there now together for three years, and so you could see it in the state meet. I know they finished a few seconds shy of the school record, but in the at the end of the day, I mean, they got to climb up to the top of the podium, so you can't claim with that.
0: And one of those athletes on that team is Ben Shyrock, who's just a junior. Uh, he had quite the day as well beyond the four by eight, correct? Yeah, yeah.
2: He uh, he ended up winning the two mile, uh, which is always nice, uh, just uh, from the writing standpoint. When the first event of the day leads to a state title, <laughs> um, but no, uh, he 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 won, and honestly, he came in seated fourth, and I think it was assumed that you know Daniel Harkin from Manhattan High had a good shot at winning the state title. In that event, because he won it two years ago, uh, he, he was the reigning Kansas Gatorade player of the year in cross country. You know, he signed to Kansas Westland, you know, to do running and tennis over there as well. And so I think he was kind of the guy to beat um, and Ben stuck with him the entire way. I mean, for seven laps, he was right behind him. Uh, and then on the eighth lap, he just he just decided to pass him and kept going. And, uh, you know, he admitted afterwards that that was pretty much his game plan. Uh, and, and he executed it to perfection. Uh, it was a very good race, and you could see that even he himself was surprised by what he did. Uh, certainly raises expectations for him, although I think he already had high expectations for a senior year, but, I mean, he's going to be good in cross-country again next year. He's going to be good in track as a distance runner as well. So, um, But a good, good way to get your first individual crown and be a good runner to do so.
0: On the girls' side of things, we saw just a sophomore, Aubrey Duncan, when the girls' javelin, uh, Lawrence High senior, Amaya Harris, who's a senior, as just mentioned, finished third in the event. Uh, tell us a little bit about what happened in, in the girls' javelin.
2: Yeah, it, that one is one of the more interesting ones. Uh, Aubrey came in, seeded, I think, second or third, um, and she said she didn't do as well at regionals. Um, but it, it was crazy because, I, I you know, that one, that one shocked me a little bit um, but it seemed like that's that was actually expectation for her. Like early in the year, I mean, this is her first year ever doing the, the, this sport. Uh, she's a volleyball player, uh, you know. That's her main focus, and so she decided, you know, when the team started practicing last year, uh, that she was going to give track a try. And then obviously the season got canceled, and so she didn't pick up a javelin at all until you know this time this year uh then it took about one or two meets and then someone told her hey you're going to be really good uh and i think uh her results speak for itself i mean she she i think shattered her already personal best by you know six or seven feet she came away with a school record um she said she came in with kind of a nothing to lose type of mindset she was only a sophomore she knew she was going to be up here a couple more times and i think that led to you know kind of besting the rest of the field by by a comfortable margin she had two tosses that would have won it uh and she i mean she just had a you know one of her best days throwing the javelin and Maya was pretty good as well uh and she was right up there in the mix as well but and she always is i mean I think that's her third time uh meddling in that event um and not having a season last year obviously so she meddled in every single time that she did that event in her high school career so she's very good as well but uh, you know aubrey certainly has you know higher higher expectations now moving forward but She already is going to focus on volleyball, you know, this weekend. I think she's going to be at a tournament, so.
0: Well, pretty interesting there. Quite the athlete, uh, to say the least. Uh, Those were some of the gold medal finishers that we just talked about. Uh, What about some of the other podium finishers, second and third places for the two local schools with Free State and Lawrence High yesterday?
2: Yeah, uh, Bella Kirkwood obviously came to mind right away. Uh, She finished up as as a runner-up as well. Uh, and, and long jump and you know obviously she she ended up falling to someone who's very good and comes away with gold medals in almost every event she does um so runner-up is nothing to be you know upset about in that event um but i think she ended up meddling you know nine or so times in her three-year career at lhs um it was different uh this year i think um i i've been so used to it now because lhs has you know had had won back-to-back state titles as teams so it, it, coming into wichita Usually was the focus of hey let's let's focus on the team and what they accomplish and and the and, you know the personal medals and all that stuff will save for a later day and and the personal stories you know kind of dominated the recap yesterday and, and and Bella you know she's had the team success so it was nice to see her kind of finish her career out with a pretty high finish there in that event.
0: Talking with Shane Jackson of the Lawrence Journal World here on Rock Shock Sports Talk and again you'll be able to this is from a lot of yesterday's action. Um, there's a lot more going on today at track and field baseball, and softball, and you'll be able to check out all that work in the Lawrence Journal World and at ljworld.com, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, switching over to the Diamond, Free State Softball is continuing to look like one of the top teams in the state. We're going to know probably by the end of today's edition of RCST whether they win the state tournament or not, so um, I guess we'll just kind of wait and see on that, but uh, just I guess how impressive, if, if you could speak on this Free State Softball team, have they been? Over the past whatever this has been now two three four seasons,
2: yeah, uh, so impressive. I mean, they they kind of you know in a sense came out of nowhere that first year where they won state title because they were the you know the eighth seed uh, and, and Tatum got healthy at the right time and that helped a lot. Um, and then with the you know the target on their back, the next year they answered and they delivered in, in a big way. I mean they they rarely lost. I believe uh, Washington Rule was one of their few losses that year, uh, and, and so they. Even with the target on their back, they were just as effective. Now, this year, uh, I feel like, you know, the target's still been there, and the last couple weeks they've been tested by teams maybe they they weren't expected to be tested by, but they've answered the call. Uh, This year's team in particular, you know, it's interesting because every team's going through this, but, you know, you have so many new faces who are just getting their first varsity experience, uh, and that's the case for some of that, you know, the bottom of the lineup there for Free State, but, you know, they came through in a big way last night um, in that 6-0 win, over late to the South. And, and so I think you're starting to see everybody get that more experience. And obviously, um, they, they'll have a tough test in the state championship game. I think Topeka High just earned a 1 win over Gardner Edgerton. So, you know, if Free State does win the semifinals here in about an hour or so, they, they would face Topeka High. And Topeka High hasn't lost all year. So it'll they'll have to answer another big test. But if there's a group that can do it, it's certainly this one.
0: And what about in baseball? Um, we know that there were some weather delays that kind of pushed back the start of things. So while softball is getting ready to wrap things up, baseball is just getting into the quarterfinals throughout today. Uh what's kind of going on over there for the Firebirds in terms of baseball?
2: Yeah, uh that was one of the what I think two events that ultimately was moved uh back a day to a weather from yesterday. Um they entered the state tournament as the number eight seed. Uh their time their start time is very much up in the air. It's kind of they're just gonna throw the games out when uh, when they, they when they are finished up, I believe the first game started at 11 a.m. Though, so they should be sometime in the afternoon, and and they get top seed the Blue Valley to start things off. Uh, Free State, you know, had to prove a lot of people wrong to even get here to this point. Uh, they ended up having to come up with a you know upset victory over Wichita West in the regional championship. You know, they took their lumps over the course of the year, uh, losing some games that they thought they shouldn't have lost to, but. Again, they were incorporating a bunch of new faces. I believe they only returned uh, two players with varsity experience from that team that went to the state championship game two years ago. Uh, and one of them was Michael Euler, who's been you know their ace pitcher this year and he he's hit his stride as well. Uh, seems like every time he's on the mound he he's pitching a complete game and he's gonna get the ball today uh, in the first round and you know that's the guy that they trust in that situation and certainly Blue Valley is very good. They have a Louisville commit who's gonna pitch on their end uh, a couple really good players as well, but you know, they free state's story has been that they they can prove people wrong. They're the underdogs, and it's a role they've accepted. And so, I'm sure that they're happy to be in this position against the Valley today.
0: He is Shane Jackson, Lawrence Journal World, and uh, we actually got to see Michael Euler pitch on our broadcast when we did the Lawrence High Free State game. Phenomenal player, and Shane actually wrote a really good piece on him that you can check out uh, at ljworld.com. So be on the lookout for all the upcoming stuff as well to catch up. In the high school sports world, with whatever happens throughout the rest of the state tournament. Shane, so much, thank you uh, so much for the time and uh, looking forward to chatting with you next time. Yeah,
2: thanks again, Derek.
0: All right, though, Shane Jackson, Lawrence Journal World, joining us here on Rock Shock Sports Talk. Later this hour, we'll be joined by Scott Jason of 247 Sports and Fog.net. He'll talk a little KU basketball with us. But coming up on the other side, Julio Jones on the trade block. Chiefs probably not a very likely destination for maybe a lot of reasons, but I'm going to tell you why, if they really wanted to, they actually probably could make it work, at least financially. We'll talk about that on the other side. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to RCST. Seems like every roster move that happens with KU is another kind of puzzle piece as we try to fill out this puzzle for the 2021 to 22 roster for KU basketball, the latest Sidney Curry backing out of his commitment, maybe if you want to read between the lines, you could say KU made have, you know, made it a little easier for him to back out of his commitment. We're joined now by Scott Jason of 24 seven sports uh, Scott, regardless of the technicalities, whether this was a Sidney Curry decision, a KU decision, uh, do you think this is as simple as a hint for KU that maybe Ochai and Jalen are both coming back and they need the scholarship?
3: Yeah, you know, Derek, I think I've been pretty consistent and, and I've felt pretty consistent in terms of how I've viewed this offseason, which is that oh, well, is probably, you know, 60-40, 65-35 in terms of lean, uh, in terms of how I viewed this situation likely to return. And I don't put that numbers to say, you know, it, it's such an arbitrary thing, right? One team can fall in love with a guy. The, the percentages are more like a guideline for me to say my confidence about how I felt about the direction that I I would think a guy is going. And, you know, that changed, obviously, when KU added Jalen Coleman uh, Lance, because uh, I think a lot of us looked at it and said, you know, hold on a second, 6'5 wing, uh, long arms, known as a three-point shooter. Um, Who does that sound like? And who does that sound like a replacement for? And, you know, I I think in some ways it it could signify things one way or another, but, you know, I, I hesitate to go, you know, at, at this point, to look too much into anything just from this perspective, I don't think Bill Self knows what is going to happen with Ochai Baji. And I, you know, like you read the, the Q&A he did with The Athletic, and something he mentioned in there was uh, that it, it almost sounded like he would take a, a guarantee of a two-way contract not even being drafted, and that would probably be enough for him uh, to depart for the NBA if he could get that guarantee. But what he said in there is that he wanted a guarantee, that he wanted a team to tell him yes, we will be picking you, or we will be offering you that two-way deal. And I think until he gets that, he's not going to know what he's going to do. You know, Obviously, if he could get to go to the Combine, that would be a big deal for him, especially in person. He'll test out well athletically. Uh, He should do well if he gets to do team workouts and show off his three point shooting ability. That should be a major plus for him. So uh, I, I just think it comes down to does he get that guarantee? If he does, and he ends up leaving, okay, you've got your replacement. You've got Jalen Coleman-Lance. He's not as good as Ocha Abadji, especially defensively, athletically, but you know, close enough and, and good enough for what this team needs. If he does come back, okay, you've got the scholarships to make it work. You've got a lot more depth on the wing. You've got a lot more three-point shooting, uh, and you like your team either way. So uh, you know, this, to me, doesn't make me think uh, the Key staff has been tipped off one way or another. But what it does make me think is that they're prepared for both scenarios. You know, obviously either him leaving or him staying.
0: Do you think if Ochai does indeed stay in the draft after all of this, do you think KU would just go into the season with an open scholarship? I mean, at that point, it'd be pretty late in the game to try to bring on another player. But uh, what are kind of your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, maybe the probably. Um, You know, it's always possible someone could come available in the same kind of situation like in Ochai Abaji. Um, you know, making a draft decision down to the minute, and then they say, you know what, I am going to transfer, and, uh, or I am going to return to school, and I am going to transfer. You know, that stuff does happen. Uh, LeGerald Vic was a uh, scenario in a situation, you know, a couple of years ago, or maybe a few, where uh, he pulled his name out of the draft and said he was going to transfer. Now, obviously, he came back to Kansas, but those guys do come available. Uh, so I think you know it'd be possible, but uh, I also don't think you know there'd be this huge scramble and rush to fill that last spot, uh, just because Kansas is already, as things stand, one over on scholarships in terms of. Uh, Mitch Lightfoot using his bonus year of eligibility, so you know already they have one extra of what you'd normally be afforded on a college roster. Um, so yeah, I mean I, I don't think it'd be a huge panic, mostly because again um, I, I think they have everything they need. Obviously they lost the guy in the front court, but you know they they have a ton of guys in the front court, right? Sidney Curry is gone, but you still have David McCormick, Mitch Lightfoot, Cam Martin is another super senior there. You've got some freshmen, you know Zach Clemens, KJ Adams. He's not a five. Maybe he'll play it in small ball lineups, but he can play the four. Jalen Wilson can play the four. He can play some five. Uh, Christian Brown can play some four if you need him to. So I, I, you just have so many guys, and and that extends to really every position on this team, uh, to where I, I don't think it would be you know an absolute mad dash to the finish or scramble and you know hey we've got to get someone in here it's needed you know I, I think Kansas you know if there was a guy sure but otherwise I think they could be you know pretty content with just leaving that one open.
0: So let's say Ochai and Jalen do uh, come back, and at that point you'd have four or five starters back. Would you guess at that point it's just as simple as, you know, Remy Martin slides in for Marcus Garrett's starting spot in the lineup and the rest is all consistent with what you had last year? Or do you think there still could be kind of a shakeup to the rotation and starting lineup even if you do have four of those five starters back?
3: Well, I think if you're a starter at Kansas, you have to lose your spot. So I think that would be – uh, a good sign for the four guys who started last year. Obviously, Ochai and Jalen, I think, would be close to locks to start. David McCormick, I think, would be a lock to start. Christian Brown would be the one I would look at and say, maybe you could change it up. And not necessarily because I think he's a bad player or anything like that. I think he's a very good player with a chance to be a, a great player. But you look at what KU has, and you know maybe you'd want to put two ball-handling guards on the court together. Um, it felt like at times last year that that KU lineup, uh, with those four guys in it didn't have many guys who could go get their own shot. So it would make sense then to say, well, Hey, let's take one of them and put him on the bench and um, play with two guard, you know, uh, ball handling guards at the same time, knowing that that guy is still going to get 25 to 30 minutes and still probably play as much. It's just tweaking your lineups um, and your rotation. So, you know, he'd be the one that makes the most sense. Um, but again, he, you know, if, if you're a starter at Kansas, you start, you know, 20 or 30 games, however many they played last year, uh, you've got to lose your spot, right? So uh, someone would have to come in either, you know, I guess Joe Yesesu would be the the most likely candidate and and earn it and show that he's good enough behind the scenes uh, to get that starting spot. Because, you know, I think Bill Self has shown he will adapt He will change things up if needed, but that's not always his default setting. So, um, you know, if there is going to be change, Christian Brown makes the most sense. I think that's why you're seeing a lot of fans, especially people who didn't really like the team last year, kind of by default automatically uh, take Christian Brown out of the starting lineup. It, It does make sense. I'm not trying to dog anyone, but. You know, at the same time, he would, you know, someone would have to come in and earn it. Um, and, and so, if you know, if Joe Yesifu couldn't do that, uh, I would have a hard time really seeing anyone do that, at least to start the year.
0: You know, a lot of the offseason talk, we always get into this mode of, well, that guy's going to play, that guy's going to play, that guy's going to play. And you go down the rotation and you end up giving minutes out to 11, 12 guys. But we all know that that doesn't end up being the case. And Bill Self might play closer to eight or nine guys. As I was talking about a little earlier today in the show, though, There are a few years where you could kind of pinpoint out and say, well, that's a bit of an exception to the rule. Like the uh, 2010-2011 team, I was basically playing 10 guys. Um, You could look back to the 2015-2016 team, and because they were basically, you know, some nights it would be Carlton Bragg, some nights Sheck Diallo, Jamari Trailer, Hunter Mickelson, Mickelson, maybe you could make the case that you had uh, an 11-man rotation until you got to the postseason in that situation. Um, Do you think this team... Has more of a case to be one of those exceptions to the rule, or would you still expect kind of the typical Bill Self, well, really it's only going to be seven or eight guys?
3: I think this team does have a little bit of an argument to make with all the pieces that come back. And the reason why I think so is because you're dealing with a lot of guys who have very good playing experience. So if you were to list off the guys, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, I don't have a roster in front of me, uh, the guys that you know are going to play based off prior playing experience, you'd start with your starting five. Let's take the four starters from last year and add Remy Martin to it. Okay, that's five guys. We think that Joe Yesifu, based off his you know playing experience, especially to end last year, is going to play. So that would be uh sixth guy. J- Jalen Coleman Lands is not transferring to Kansas. You know, obviously without the idea that he's going to play. That's seven guys. So you you look at that seven, you're going to get one more guard out of the the backcourt. So that's either going to be Pettiford or Harris. That's going to be eight. And that hasn't even mentioned any of the freshmen big men that you've brought in that hasn't mentioned any depth actually, any backup big men. So that, you know, like at a minimum you're starting with nine. And I'm not saying all these guys are going to play 20, 25 minutes whatever. But I think uh, an eight- or a nine-man rotation is kind of the floor for what Kansas is going to be because of the – it's not just like newcomers or freshmen or unproven talent. It's guys who have actually proven it at you know, a high level. So you know if you want to say you know, pick a few guys who could get phased out, well, someone of Cam Martin, Mitch Lightfoot, and Zach Clements, uh, not going to get very many minutes. Someone of you know Bobby Pettiford, Dewan Harris, not going to get that many minutes. Maybe it's possible someone out of Joe Yesifu, Jalen coleman um, isn't going to get that many minutes. But, you know, it's still a lot of guys. And, again, you combine that with the fact that Kansas, if everyone comes back, will have 14 scholarship players, one more than normal. You know, we've seen Kansas go into seasons with an open scholarship. This is a case where Kansas will be one over. And you'll know that several of these guys, you know, Cam Martin, Remy Martin, Mitch Lightfoot, probably David McCormick, Ocha Abaji, if he comes back. You know, you've got those guys for one year, so you may as well play them. Uh, I think it'll be a case where Bill Self encourages his front court guys to be very aggressive and foul and kind of work out the minutes that way by, you know, hey, if you get in foul trouble, it's no big deal. We have people behind you. You know, just play hard. Um, I think that'll be part of the equation. And then, you know, I, I think same thing on the wing almost. Still have so many. Uh, that he can throw out another team, that he won't have a problem with those guys being too aggressive, which might actually help KU's defense be better uh, than it was last, uh, than it was, I guess, not quite last year, but maybe two years ago.
0: We're talking with Scott Chasen of 24-7 Sports, Fog.net. You mentioned Bobby Pettiford, and uh, there was kind of something last night that it sounded like he uh, tore some ligaments in his ankle. I, I don't know if, if that has an impact, uh, the, the time frame on that of, him being ready to go at the start of the season or if it would impact his ability to kind of get with the team during summer camp and in the fall and all that stuff. Um, But I know there's obviously been the the rumor floated out that Kyle Cuff might be a guy that would take a red shirt. If Bobby Pettiford is indeed kind of behind because of this injury that he suffered, do you think that could just be the easiest way of, of clearing up the rotation, at least at the guard position, with those two guys really just... I don't know, maybe red both of them.
3: Yeah, well, I think Kyle Cuff makes sense. Real quick, let me correct something I just said. Talking about the defense two years ago, I mean two years ago before this last season. Uh, I'm talking about the Quentin Grimes team being the one that struggled defensively. But, yeah, to jump back to the red-shirt thing, um, Kyle Cuff makes sense. Definitely as a red-shirt, a guy who only played a couple games last year uh, because of the way the season worked and then obviously reclassified up. Think he makes sense, uh, Bobby Pettiford. From what I've heard, what I've been told, that I don't believe it's that serious. He tore a couple of uh, or a few, I guess, ligaments in his ankle. I think we're talking about a matter of weeks, not months. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously he'll get evaluated when he gets to Lawrence, and they'll decide how long he needs to be held out. I think he told, actually, or, or Bill Self told Gary Bedore, kind of a similar thing that you know this is expected to be, you know, hey, maybe a couple weeks, and then he's back on the court. So I, I don't think it's anything serious there. I actually think he'll get the chance to crack the rotation. It'll be him or Dewan Harris. But I think one of those guys will have the chance to really earn uh, some decent playing time. And the other one, you know, maybe they'll compete with Joe Yesifu to steal a few of his minutes. But uh, one of those guys is going to play. And I, I think they'd want to keep that depth and-, and see which one of those guys emerges, especially because it could be a case where, you know, Dewan Harris is ahead at the beginning of the year and Bobby Pettiford is ahead at the end of the year. So, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily expect him to redshirt unless uh, something is is much more serious than than we know at this point, but you know again, I don't expect that to be the case. It, it's kind of hard to find redshirt candidates on this KU roster, uh, just because you know maybe the guys you'd look at, you know, you'd say, hey, you know, KJ Adams, you know, are you going to play that much this year? There's so much other wing depth, there's so much other big man depth, but I think Bill Self really likes KJ Adams and. You know, same for a guy like Zach Clements. Not many, you know, top 40 guys come to a place or, you know, right around that mark and then end up redshirting. So, um, yeah, I think Kyle Cuff makes sense as an obvious one. Uh, maybe they'll find a second redshirt in there somewhere. But, you know, at the same time, I I don't think they'd be afraid to go into the season uh, with a lot of guys having the chance to play it out just from the perspective, of knowing, um, you know, hey, you might only get a few minutes, bits and pieces here and there. But you're going to get some good experience, and then a lot of these guys, the seniors and redshirt seniors and whatnot, a lot of those guys are going to be gone after the year anyway.
0: Outside of you know questions over the starters, uh, just for guys that could crack that rotation, whether it is, like you said, a battle between Dewan Harris and Bobby Pettiford or any other position, is there already one that you're kind of circling in your head that you're most interested to see what player kind of wins that battle and actually is able to crack consistent minutes in the rotation?
3: Yeah, I think the second guard spot is the, the easy answer, uh, Christian Brown versus whoever, to cement his starting spot, cement big minutes, whatever, whether that's yes or who or whoever that is. But backup point guard, to me, is the spot that um, I'm not going to say matters most, but it's a pretty big deal because that guy most likely is going to be your starting point guard uh, in 2022-23. I'm trying to think of uh, the years and what next season would be. Not this season, but next. Um, and if if Dewan Harris can show that, hey, I am good enough to play at this level and lead the team and, and he shows he's too good to keep off the court, then I think that tells you a lot about the stock of Dewan Harris. And, you know, on the other side, if you're a KU fan, you're probably almost rooting for Bobby Pettiford to come in and just be way better than expectations Because if that happens, then you've got a guy who can emerge and maybe not necessarily be as good as Frank Mason, but follow the same path, right? You know, being that backup point guard. Uh, his first year, maybe getting a little bit of starting experience at the two uh, or next to another point guard. He's obviously a point guard, uh, but just playing in that backcourt and then, you know, hey, a big leap the, the next year. So um, that that battle between Dwan Harris and Bobby Pettiford, to me, is probably the most interesting just because, you know, let's say Christian Brown gets beat out for a starting spot. Let's say that happens okay, he's still going to play. You know, he's going to play a ton of minutes. Uh, And and if Joe Yesifu is good enough, he'll play a ton of minutes. And Bill Self will find a way for both of those guys, you know, to play a ton of minutes. But when you look at that point guard spot, uh, you know, it it really starts to get limited there. And that's where I think you see one of those guys is going to get phased out. It's not going to be Remy Martin. So, you know, Juwan Harris or Bobby Pettiford, one of those guys is going to play. One of those guys isn't, Uh, at least early on, you know, which one is it going to be?
0: Would KU's possible bench unit of, I guess, Jalen Coleman lands if Ochai came back, maybe, or uh, Joe Yesufu, him, Coleman lands, Cam Martin, Zach Clements, would that be KU's best shooting lineup since the twenty eighteen team, and that would be coming off your bench?
3: Yeah, I think it would almost have to be just from the perspective of uh, those teams really since 2018 haven't been great shooting the ball. Obviously, 2018-19 maybe had some potential, especially with Dedrick Watson as a floor spacing option, but he really didn't take that many threes a game. Uh, The next year, Kansas wasn't a great shooting team. Isaiah Moss could shoot. Christian Brown on low volume could shoot. Ochaia was good, Um, and Devon Dotson shot an okay percentage, but... Those were mostly unguarded catch-and-shoot opportunities. He wasn't making his own shot, finding room behind the three-point line off the bounce uh, and knocking those down. And so, yeah, you know, when you think about it, this current KU team has so many options and so many guys uh, that could just make threes and shoot from distance that, you know, I think even that bench lineup would have to be Um, you know, a a better shooting team. It wouldn't be a better team. You know, that bench lineup wouldn't beat any of those aforementioned teams, you know, head-to-head. But, you know, Joe Yesifu can create his own shot. Jalen coleman lands is a proven three-point shooter with multiple seasons uh, of good three-point shooting. Cam Martin can obviously shoot. Zach Clements is a good shooter who has really good form. uh, And, and, you know, maybe it won't translate year one as a freshman, whatever. uh, But I, I think those pieces are in place. Uh, for there just to be so many good three-point shooters in time on the KU basketball roster. And then obviously you add guys back into the mix, you know, like Ochai and and Jalen Wilson, who will be in the starting lineup. And then you're really talking about shooting, maybe not quite at every position because, you know, how much will Cam Martin really play uh, over a guy like David McCormick? But uh, you're talking about a whole lot of shooting on that roster, you know, Remy Martin to Ochai Abaji to Christian Brown to everyone. So, um, I think this has the potential to be one of Bill Self's best shooting teams. It may not have a shooter as good as Devontae Graham or Steve McHyluke, but man, it sure has a lot of good three point shooters. Really better than, you know, a lot of the guys you'd think of as being decent, you know, kind of marksmen, the one guy or two in the in the rotation or in the lineup each year that was like the three point guy. Uh, this has a lot of shooters that would be better than most of them.
0: He's Scott Jason, you can check out all his work. 24-7 sports, fog.net. Scott, thank you so much for the time.
3: Thanks for having me.